Good morning. I noticed there's a lot of um, unfamiliar faces to me this morning. My name is uh, John Levitt. I'm an elder here at the church and have been an elder for um, some time. Our pastor, Dudley, and his wife, Chris, are traveling. They're with family this weekend. Uh, be praying for them that they enjoy their time. I know they're, they're relaxed and having a great time. Uh, and they will be traveling back this week, so be uh, praying for them. Um, we, there was a little bit of talk about how early the Christmas season has started this year. I remember um, about a month ago, right after Halloween, I was maybe one or two days afterwards, and I was in Home Depot, and Christmas lights were, were already up and all the decorations. And thinking through this weekend and all of the turkey that we had, Thanksgiving, and uh, I just need a show of hands. How many of you were Black Friday shoppers that were actually out? Is there, do we have anybody, or do we do it online? Are we a techno? Oh, we have a few just... It's like shy people saying, I, I don't want to. So we have all of this stuff uh, going on. So these various different seasons, right? We call it the Christmas season, the shopping season, all of these things going on. Um, if you're you know, a football fan, it's a, a big time for the football season. But in the church, as Chuck mentioned earlier, it's the Advent season. And I think in church, sometimes we have words that, or phrases that we use in the church that we don't really use outside. And I think of, you know, things like born again, save, lost, share Christ, give your testimony, things like that. Advent fits into that category. It's one of those church words. And of course, um, this is on your uh, outline today, and Chuck mentioned this earlier. Advent means arrival or coming. Now, in Christian tradition, it actually not only refers to Jesus coming the first time, it actually refers to his second coming. And then in studying for the lesson, I looked at the number of calendars that we have active today. Now, the one that you use almost every day, it's actually the one that's most, uh, the most uh, internationally used civic calendar, is what's called the Gregorian calendar. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'll throw this in for free this morning. It's a modification of the Julian cal calendar. The Julian calendar, the way in which um, Easter was calculated calendar-wise, kept pushing Easter further and further away from the uh, spring equinox. So there was a change to the calendar. Uh, we call it the Gregorian calendar, and it started uh, its use in the late 1500s. Now, there's some other calendars that are still in use today. You might be, uh, once I mention them, you'll realize that. There's a Hebrew calendar, Indian, Islamic, and Chinese calendars. Of course, with the Hebrew calendar uh, today in our culture, uh, not only with Christian holidays, you see a lot of Hebrew uh, feasts and festivals and holidays are mentioned. Uh, with the Islamic holiday, you'll recognize that uh, the Feast of Ramadan is um, uh, celebrated sometime around this year. And then with the Chinese calendar, you probably realize that the Chinese New Year happens shortly after our New Year. It's usually four to eight weeks from our, our New Year. I have a, um, I have a um, uh, dry cleaner who's from Malaysia and of Chinese descent, and so I found out from her that 2016 is the year of the monkey, whatever that means. Um, I asked her once, um, I told her the year I was born, and I won't repeat that year now, but I told her the year I was born, and she said I was born in the year of the chicken, and I was just so encouraged. <laughs> and later she told me she had translated that incorrectly, that's actually the year of the rooster. And I don't know that I like that any better. I thought she was going to tell me, no, it was, I was the year of the tiger, but no, that didn't. And actually, if you talk to my family members, they're, they're pretty sure most of the time that I was born in the year of the donkey. So I'll just let that one sit. 
right there. And of course, of uh, all the calendars we have, we actually have a Christian or church calendar um, as we've talked about Advent, and it is the first season of the year for the church calendar, and it initiates the Christmas season, and that's on your outline as well. And the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, we focus on hope, love, joy, and peace. And so today, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about the topic of hope. Now, I always like when we translate these words from Greek into English and Typically, our English connotation or our English usage is so different than what the Bible's true meaning is, and I think that's certainly the case of the word hope. Hope can certainly mean to us that, yeah, there's some assurance of what's going to happen in the future is actually going to take place, but most of the time for us, it really means wishful thinking. And so, um, as an example, if you're a dolphin fan, you know all about wishful thinking, you're probably hoping that uh, the Dolphins are going to beat the Jets today. But as a Dolphin fan, there's this continuum of wishful thinking, the most extreme of which is today, which is called a pipe dream. So, um, You know, according to the Bible, hope has a very consistent meaning. And what I want to do is look at a couple of um, passages and then give you a definition This is Jesus talking to his disciples um, at the Last Supper. Let, your hearts not, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And then we have Paul with this verse. That is why I am suffering here in prison, but I am not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted at him until the day of his return. Um, we look at these promises of Jesus, and so I, I just think of this promise of Jesus coming back. Here is the definition from your outline that I put together, which is hope is the expectation that God will do what he promises. Hope is the expectation that God will do what he promises. And then within Scripture, we have a couple of characteristics of this kind of hope. Uh, first, from 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. That means an active, powerful hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, a verse that I... I've just grown to love over recent years. It says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The word remain means lasting, not diminishing. You could translate it to uh, eternal. So for the Christian, we're not only to have this living and eternal hope, but we're to understand it. And in fact, we're supposed to be able to explain it to people that ask us about it. First Peter, um, this is Peter talking, says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. The real issue, though, for a lot of us, is that our hope has diminished or it has disappeared. Life, in its journey, sometimes doesn't turn out the way we planned. And sometimes these turns are downward turns and they impact us significantly. 
If you could roll back your own calendar of your life when you were younger, it's probably not, you probably never hoped that you'd be an alcoholic. Probably never hoped that you would be a, a drug addict. Probably never hoped that you'd be divorced. Probably never hoped that you'd lose your job or have to foreclose on your mortgage or have to go week to week wondering where the money was going to come from. You probably never hoped that that loved one was going to die before their time. And lastly, you probably never hoped that you would be so alone. In these downturns that happen in our lives, it seems as though during the Christmas season, a time when we're supposed to be so joyful and happy, we're actually just not that at all. We're, in fact, very down, very unhappy. I think about um, uh, my mom. My mom had one uh, brother, father and mother, and I remember that my uh, uncle died when he was uh, in his 20s. I was a, a youngster. I never met him. And about 10, year, 10 years later, her, my grandfather died. And 10 years after that, my grandmother died. And so that's it for my mom. So for years, my mom has been, other than you know, her children, she's been the only one surviving in her family. The issue is that those deaths in the calendar all occurred within a five-day window in the month of December. So for her, she remembers losing her loved ones during the holiday season. And so uh, Christmas can be a very unhappy time for my mom because of that. And I know others of us um, feel the same way about things. And so here's what I wanted you to see uh, from your outline, and that is that disappointment, disappointment can take away hope. And sometimes that disappointment leads to helplessness. Um, I want to show you this passage from Job. Why is life given to those with no future, those God has surrounded with difficulties? I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. If you know the story of Job, you know that uh, God allows Satan to afflict him. Um, he loses his, all of his children uh, he loses all of his means of income. He was a very wealthy man. All of his crops, all of his ability to earn a living are destroyed. And then beyond that, he's inflicted with these terrible, uh, painful boil boils. And as you read that passage, you can almost sense the pain and the agony and the helplessness that Job, feel, Job feels as he uh, just talks about all that's happened to him. And then sometimes and this is also on your outline, this, this helplessness can then lead to despair, and despair is actually the opposite of hope. And this uh, passage is also from uh, Job, and this is Job's wife talking to us. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. You can imagine she's gone through everything her husband's gone through and her husband is sick and in her mind probably sick such that he's going to die. She's telling him to just do it and get over and get to the inevitable. I see in her just being so totally uh, hopeless. But as a Christian, how should we respond to disappointment? And I want you to see this first from uh, Paul. And according to what Paul tells us, more than that, 
We rejoice in our sufferings. And if you wanted to, you could substitute the word disappointments here. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. So the interesting thing is that hope isn't supposed to take, or disappointment isn't supposed to take hope away. It's actually supposed to build our hope. So how is it then that we should respond uh, to disappointment? Well, since it's the Advent season, I thought that it would be interesting if we dove into the Christmas story from a couple of different angles, um, and we're, we are going to do that, but I want to give you some context. At the time that Jesus was born, life in Israel was way different from what we're familiar with. Um, the, Roman, the, Roman, um, the Romans ruled Israel and the Jews. Uh, the Roman army was a formidable force, so much so that there was really little hope that uh, they would be overthrown and that uh, Israel would come from out, uh, underneath the oppression of that government. The Romans also controlled, controlled the roadways and the ports, so in that sense they controlled the entire economy. Uh, they also taxed the Jews very heavily. Uh, the Jews were taxed at 50%, was about what the uh, estimate is, and that's before you had tax collectors who could also um, take more from them. Uh, if you think about our tax system, I think our top personal tax rate is around 35 to 37%, but in our system it's progressive, so your rates start lower and work up as you make more income. In Israel, it was 50% of every dollar um, that you made. It's an arid culture. It was dry. It was hot. Um, at night, it got very cold. Uh, in some of the reading I did on that, they said it was so hot that you had to bury um, the dead very quickly or they would start to de decompose uh, within hours of their death. So a lot of times people, they hurried to get their loved ones um, put in the tombs. The interesting thing is they actually had a tradition or a practice of three days later going to the tomb because too many times they buried people that were actually alive. So thinking, you know, wanting to do what was right and to get a perhaps a decomposing body buried, they would bury people. So they would go back three days later in an attempt to see if that person actually had woken up. And there are instances where that actually happened. For the typical Jewish boy, you could be a farmer, you could be a tradesman, a fisherman, or maybe a merchant. So when a boy turned 12 or 13 years old, um, he was taught a trade. That is, he was trained in the vocation that he would likely practice for the rest of of his life. So when we think of Joseph, Mary's husband, he probably became quite skilled at carpentry in his early teens. Girls were basically property and could be sold into slavery at a young age. They were also expected to marry soon after becoming uh, of childbearing age. So if you can think of that happening maybe between the ages of 12 and 14, uh, most girls were betrothed in arranged marriages where the husband's family would pay a dowry to the wife's family. Now the, bower, the dowry was really an estimate of the lost income that the girl's family um, has as a result of her leaving the family. Um, after being married, the wife was expected to have and raise children, cook meals, make and mend clothing, and uh, basically just uh, keep the house. So you can see that life was not as uh, we, we know it today. And then, so when you think about the, the Christmas story and we think about Joseph, Joseph and Mary, it's my thought that they were probably um, teenagers 
when their families agreed uh, to uh, the marriage. So let's just step into our own culture just right this morning and we dismissed our high schoolers and our middle schoolers. Can you imagine any of them being ready today to take on their life's vocation or to marry and, and have children? And I would say we'd probably all say likely not, right? Likely not. All right, so what we're going to do now is we're going to read the two versions of the Christmas story. One you heard uh, part of from Chuck earlier. We'll read more of that. And the first one we're going to read is um, from Matthew 1, and this is verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, that is, before they had sex, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And oh, by the way, if you... Um, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, in the Greek, I think it gets pronounced Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. So that's what Jesus means, his name means. Because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is to mean God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave uh, birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now this is uh, the version we see uh, from Luke of Mary. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. All right, so what I want to do is try to piece together a timeline. Um, so here's how I think it went. First, you have Gabriel appearing uh, to Mary. And then within a few days, actually, if you read on in Luke, you see that within a couple of days, Mary leaves to go uh, visit her relative Elizabeth. And we know that Mary is pregnant because when she arrives, the pregnant Elizabeth, the baby inside her womb, leaps, leaps for joy, we think. And that baby is, in fact, John the Baptist. 
And then it, uh, the Bible tells us that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months before she returned home. Now here's where it gets really tricky because Mary coming home, who is now pregnant, has to tell her family that she in fact is with child. So can you imagine her trying to explain how it is that she became pregnant to her mom and dad? All right, so here's what I want you to I just want you to think of your own kids when they do stuff wrong and the lame excuses that we get, right, as parents. So I'm trying to think, her dad going, what? You have got to be kidding me. You've got to come up with a better story than that, right? And also think, too, Thankfully, there was no Planned Parenthood for Mary to go to. There was no first care to help her through her pregnancy or to give her a sonogram. There were no adoption services. There was nothing she could do but to tell her family. Interestingly, though, I think we see from Scripture that Mary was virtuous and obedient, so I think her family believed her story. Also bear in mind that at this point in time in history, women who were unfaithful sexually could be stoned. So you can imagine that Mary has some fear of how is the family going to respond to her, right? Um, I'm thinking, too, that her extended family, probably Joseph's family and the community at large, uh, would certainly think that she had been unfaithful, and there might have been even some discussion about having her stoned. Then somebody's got to tell Joseph and his family, Keep in mind the dating structure wasn't like, like it is today. It wasn't like Mary and Joseph went out for some popcorn and a Coke and Mary, you know, lands the news on Joseph. It didn't happen that way at all. My thought is you have Mary telling her family, I'm almost certain it was her father that went to Joseph's father, told him the story, and then Joseph learns from his father that Mary is pregnant. And then we see from Scripture that it says that Joseph was a good man. This just means he was upright, he was obedient. I think he knew the law. Uh, in fact, I think that when you look at both Mary and Joseph, you can see that I'm, I'm going to call them churched children because they both seem to have a very good grasp on uh, the Scripture. And then based on Joseph's reaction, he decides that he's not going to have her stoned, that he's going to call off the marriage quietly and not disgrace her. Then he has this dream and then he takes uh, Mary to be his wife. All right, so how does this relate to disappointment and how we should respond to it? Well, the first thing I want you to think about is think about the shock and the disappointment that uh, Mary had. You know, she even responds and says, wait a second, I'm a virgin. I haven't had sex. I haven't been unfaithful. Um, and she finds herself pregnant. And there must have been a lot of fear, realizing, of course, that she um, would face disgrace and might actually face death. And then if you're the guy and you think of Joseph, you can imagine how to, uh, betrayed he must have felt, how mad he probably was when he first heard that Mary uh, was pregnant. So here's what I want you to see first, looking at Joseph's uh, reaction. And this is on your outline. A typical reaction to things going wrong, to disappointments, is I try to carry out my own plan. And it's easy to read Joseph's decision to divorce Mary and to say he was justified in that. But in fact, I think he came up with this course of action all on his own. He didn't consult God. And isn't this what is typical of us? In the midst of our disappointment, we feel like we've lost some control, so we begin to get creative in terms of how we're going to get out from underneath you know, the trial that we're about to face. 
But our reaction should be, what is it that God wants for us next? I know that I have heard this so many times from Dudley. It's sort of etched on my um, brain now when I face difficulty. Dudley always says when we face trials, don't say why, but say, what am I supposed to learn from it? So let's now compare what, how Mary responded. First of all, I mentioned just a second ago that Mary was probably in great shock to find out that she was pregnant because she hadn't had sex with anybody yet. And I think when you read the passage, probably when she heard that she was going to be pregnant, that she kind of just shut down everything else that she heard because there's all this great language about how her son is going to be the son of God and the Savior and all of this. And she says, well, how can this be? Because I've, I've never been with a man. So Gabriel has to repeat who this child is going to be. And what does Mary say in the end? I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Her reaction is to trust God and his timing. And this is the second point on your outline, and that is to follow God's plan. So how do you find God's plan? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, I think as we face disappointment, God's want, He wants us to rely on Him. He wants us to recall that hope we have in Him. And typically, that's going to require us to pause and to think about what those next steps are to make sure they're in sync with God's will, even if that means that I'm going to run head-on into this tribulation I'm now facing. And it's so, easily for, it's so easy for us to try to change that course, to take, things, take the matters into our own hands. But I think practically, if we can show patience, like Paul says, be patient in tribulation, coupled with prayer, we can actually see our hope increase, not in spite of our trials, but because of them. All right, the last thing that I'd like to just show you today, and this is on your outline, that God is our source of hope. God is our source of hope. I just love this passage from David. Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. I just think it's so great that King David reminds us that it's in God and through God that we are victorious and we're hopeful. But for those of you who don't have a personal relationship with God, I want to share another part of the Christmas story with you. And in that region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come to all people. And what I want to be able to say to you this morning is there is good news. And at BBCC, we talk about the good news and the bad news a lot. And that is the bad news. We have a sin problem, right? The Bible says we've all sinned and we fall short of God's standard. And then because of that sin, we face death. And that's physical and spiritual death. The Bible even says to us the wages of sin is death. Here's what Jesus has to say about that. I know that a lot of times we are so used to hearing the verse John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. 
It gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should perish and uh, not perish and have eternal life. But I love verses 17 and 18, and here's what Jesus said. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, and listen closely, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What does condemned already mean? It means um, sentence to be without God forever in a real place, a physical place called hell. But there is hope because God sent Jesus. Jesus came to earth, the advent. It's the season that we're celebrating. And Jesus lives this perfect life. He lives it for you and for me, a life we couldn't live on our own. Then he willingly lets himself die on the cross. The Bible talks about this death in two ways. One is that it was a sacrifice. That is that Jesus gave of his life willingly and sacrificed it. Two, it was substitutionary. That means that we were deserved to die. On that cross, it should have been us there, but instead it was Jesus substituting himself for us. And because of that, then you have Jesus raising from the dead. He defeats death. Did you know that Jesus is alive now just like you are? If you grabbed your arm like this, you could pinch Jesus' arm just like that if he were here today. He's alive in heaven today interceding for you so that if you confess your sin, if you ask him to forgive you, and that you believe that he is who he says he is, you will be saved and you will have hope, a living and eternal hope. And I can't think of a better time of the year um, to get things right with God. But if you're here today and life has been extremely disappointing and this is a difficult season for you, my prayer is that you will spend time going over these verses and reaching deep to find that hope that God has inside of you so that he might lift your spirits and actually see how he can overcome um, your disappointment with his hope. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you um, for today, uh, just for uh, your word. I want to thank you for your hope. I want to thank you for what Jesus did um, on the cross. Lord, for those who are here today that don't know Jesus, I pray that they would really consider what you have to say to them, that they would confess their sins. They would just say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't get to heaven, but anyway, through you, I ask you to come into my life and to save me. Just something very simple like that. God, I pray that people would pray that today and they would get saved. And then, Lord, for those who have had a lot of disappointments in life, I pray for your hope. I pray that you would fill them with your hope, that they would remember your hope, and that that would lift them above uh, the disappointments that they've seen so that they can have joy at this time of year. We give you great thanks now. In Christ's name, amen.